Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for your word, first of all, that we get to read. Thank you that it is alive and active. Thank you that it convicts us in our hearts of how we ought to understand you and how we ought to interact with you and how we ought to serve you. Thank you particularly right now for the example of Nehemiah, and I thank you for the sermon that Tommy's about to preach to us um, of how we can model him and why he is a model to us and how Nehemiah's life is consistent with your commands of how we ought to live, Lord. And thank you for, in particular, the example of prayer that Nehemiah offers us. Uh, and thank you for the ultimate example that you've given us in Jesus for the way that he died for us to forgive us of our sins, God, so that we could enjoy him forever, Lord, and find enjoyment in eternity, loving you and giving glory to you and thanking you for all that you've done for us. And let this be a thanks offering, in a sense, to you now, hearing this sermon and trying to live it out, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.
and everybody is generally safe and secure. But when they don't walk in obedience, the Lord disciplines them. He disciplines them through famine. He does it through war. And he doesn't do this just to sadistically torture them, but to show them how much they actually need him. How much he actually blesses them when he is walking with them. And so he wants what's best for them. And one of the things that Israel has to learn over and over again is that doing things God's way is what is best for them. But like rebellious children, they don't always believe him. And they believe that what they think uh, they ought to do is what is best for them. So this is why Nehemiah weeps and he mourns for days when he finds out the state of Jerusalem. And some people might say, well, what is the big deal? It's just some gates and some walls that are burned down. But Nehemiah knows that it's a really big deal. This isn't just a minor disciplining. Uh, a little time out in the corner for Israel. Jerusalem is absolutely devastated. That they are literally a pile of rubble on the ground that's still smoldering, which is, as we, we established, is also the state of their spiritual health as well. So it's more than just about the city. Nehemiah knew this, and so he responds with care and compassion for Israel. But he doesn't go right into attack mode. We'll see that he's quite an industrious and ambitious problem solver. He's a man of great vision. He's, he's able to be just very competent and capable, but he doesn't just go into problem solving mode. You see in chapter 1 that he takes time to mourn and to grieve. He takes time uh, to, to fast, and then he takes time to pray. He prays a lot. He prays theologically rich prayers. You see this in the latter portion of um, chapter 1. He relies on the promises of God, which are in God's word, and he keeps at it every single day, praying and praying and praying. And four months later, you open up with verse 1 of chapter 2. So let me read that again. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Ataxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So Nehemiah has been praying since Kislev all the way to Nisan. Uh, and if you're not up to speed on your Hebrew calendars, what that means is that he's been praying from November-ish until March-ish. So about four months. And, and we see here um, that one day he's at work as the cupbearer to the king. Remember, that's his job to make sure there's no poison or anything in the, in the food or in the wine for the king. And he, he's doing his job for the king of Babylon, and the king notices that he's sad. And now this isn't like you showing up to work and your boss is like, you do not look good. Like, you look like you have COVID. You should go back home. <laughs> Ataxerxes says, you don't look sick. You look heartbroken. So he's able to see that. And again, I think this is another indicator that Nehemiah's care, his compassion for his people, um, the people whom he's been praying for every single day for these four months is genuine. Like, it is real. The, the state of the people has affected him. Not just in the moment when he first found out and he kind of collapsed on the ground and wept and mourned for days. Um, but he's been carrying that compassion to the point where his boss calls him out on it and says, Hey, are you doing all right? You, you don't look very happy. You look really sad. And I don't want to re-preach the sermon from last week, but it is really important to keep in mind that Nehemiah's heart is for his people. His compassion and cares for his people. So everything that he's about to do, all his prayers, all the energy and effort going into the next 13 chapters of Nehemiah are coming from a place of great care and concern for his people. So keep that in mind. So then after, in the narrative, after Ataxerxes calls him out, we see Nehemiah gets scared. 
Looks like he has a moment of panic, and I think this could have been for a few reasons. There's a Bible scholar, his name is Raymond Brown. He points out this fact. This is going to be up on your screen. Oriental monarchs were not noted for generous tolerance. Few would have been impressed by a sulky face. The wrong word spoken at an inopportune time, and he might end on the gallows. So it's a pretty intense workplace there. Uh, today, if you show up sad or angry, they're probably not going to discipline you. Back then, before the king, if you made him sad by your faith being sad, that would be good enough reason for some sort of corporate punishment. And so that is a reason why uh, Nehemiah might be a little bit nervous. He's like, well, gosh, like, I, I don't want to die right now. That's one reason. There's other reasons, too, where he, why he could be nervous. He could feel like he's being put on the spot. Maybe he's been praying for this moment for a long time, and he's like, oh, this is the moment. Like, uh, right? And he's panicking a little bit. But nevertheless, whatever reason why he's afraid, he gathers himself, and he takes this probing question from the king as an opportunity. He takes it as an opportunity. And boy, does he seize the moment. Read with me, starting in verse 3. And I said, sorry, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant hath found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asa, the, king, the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So these sermons, like I mentioned, are a little bit briefer, so we don't have the we don't have the time to jump into all of the nuance here, but here's the main observation that I want to make as we're, we're looking at this text. The, the way that this interaction goes between Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes, it reveals a lot about prayer. It reveals a lot about prayer. Specifically, it shows us what it looked look like for Nehemiah to pray uh, persistently, uh, to pray constantly, and to be waiting on the Lord for an answer. So at first glance, it doesn't seem all that significant. It's just a brief conversation, but this conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes is absolutely miraculous. It's absolutely miraculous. What starts with the king just checking in and saying, hey, you look sad, what's the matter? It ends with Nehemiah asking for two months off from work to rebuild the walls for a city that's been known for rising up and terrorizing the surrounding nations, for asking for a military escort protection along the caravan route, oh, and for the king to pay for all of the expenses and provide for all of the supplies for rebuilding the 10 city gates, two and a half miles of 40-foot walls all around that city, and he adds in there that he's going to build a house for himself while he's at it at the king's expense. So the miracle is not that Nehemiah had the guts and the confidence to slap this audacious shopping list on the table in front of the king, but actually that, the, that it pleased the king to say yes to everything. It's absolutely miraculous. Verse 8, the second half there, and the king granted me what I asked for, the word for is like because, because the good hand of my God was upon me. 
So Nehemiah isn't oblivious to the fact that this interaction between him and the king was nothing short of miraculous. Uh, his retelling of it here is attributing the king's response to the fact that, quote, the good hand of my God was upon me. Meaning, if God's hand was not upon Nehemiah, I think the king would have likely laughed in his face. So in these short verses, in this relatively short exchange, Nehemiah is able to get time off from work. He's able uh, to secure uh, safe passage. He's able to secure funding for the rebuilding. He's able to get a house for himself uh, out of it. And he's also, maybe most importantly, able to get the king's blessing over this entire endeavor. I think this is one of the things that we need to remember as we read Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a regular lay person like the majority of the people in this room. When you read through the Old Testament, there are different categories or offices of people that you see kind of recurring over and over again. You see prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. Um, Nehemiah is none of these things. So he's not a prophet, though he really loves God's word like one. He kind of acts like one in terms of zealousness for God's law and for his word. But he, he's not a prophet. Um, he's not an anointed king over Israel, though he does have really great giftings in leadership. Uh, he really understands logistics, and it, it seems like he'd be a great fit for a king, but he's not a king. Uh, Nehemiah is not a priest, and so it, it, you see in him a great care for God's people um, and a great care for their spiritual health. And he acts a lot like a priest, but he's not a priest. Nehemiah is a regular working guy trying to be faithful to God, and especially as he cares for those that are around him. And so I think that that reality ought to encourage us. It should inspire us that he's not like this super special guy. He's a normal person who works a normal job. It might be honestly a little bit convicting for us as well because of what he's able to do as he is faithful to God. So this morning, I want to give us just three things um, in this passage that I think are, are revealed about prayer and how Nehemiah prays between chapter 1 and these verses here this morning. And I think what we see is that uh, godly prayer is done persistently, it's done constantly, and that it includes active waiting on the Lord. Persistently, constantly, actively waiting on the Lord. Let's look at how prayer is done persistently. Nehemiah doesn't pray once as if he's dropping a payment for a bill off in the mail and just wait for that, that transaction to process. That's not how he approaches prayer. He's praying as if he has a relationship with a person who he meets regularly with for coffee and has a conversation with that person. He's praying as if he's praying what he's praying about is actually really important to him, that it's actually worth his time praying for these things. But we're persistent with the things that we care about. That's just true about us. For some of us, we are incredibly persistent when it comes to pursuing a romantic relationship. That's one of the greatest areas of persistence in some of our lives. For others of us, it might be schoolwork. Others, it might be parenting. I remember when I was graduating from college and I was looking for a job. It's one of the seasons that I was ravenously persistent in looking for a job. I would apply for jobs and I would not wait for a response. I would call the HR department every single day just to see how the process was going, if they needed anything extra, just to be on the ball. I was encouraged to do this by my mom, and, and, and I, would, I, would, I would do this every single day, and I imagined like, that was really annoying for whoever was on the other side, but in all fairness, I think that it also communicated that I really cared about the position. It gave me a little bit of edge over other people that maybe didn't call it every single day, and I ended up getting that job that I was the most persistent with. 
One of the things that you see in Scripture is that Jesus praises annoying persistence like this, specifically as we pray. So he encourages us to pray and to continue praying, even when it might feel like it's being done in vain. Look at Luke chapter 18. This is going to be on your screens, verses 1 through 8. This is uh, talking about a parable that Jesus told. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always, always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow, widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So the idea that's being communicated in this passage is that even humans, humans like this judge who are corrupt and sinful, who neither fear God nor respect people, even humans respond to persistence. Even people in HR departments who have no reason to care for my well-being and my future will make sure that my application and my resume get pushed through the system. So then how much more will God, who is perfectly caring of his people, who himself is justice, not just desiring justice, but who is filled also with compassion, who is ultimately loving, how much more will he respond to our persistence as children crying out to a father? One of the things that you learn as you read the Bible is that we cannot annoy God with faithful, persistent prayer. We cannot. There will never be a time where God's patience for our faithful prayer runs out. He's like, oh my goodness, why are you praying so much to me? He invites it. He's like, talk to me as much as you want. He loves conversing with us in prayer. Sometimes the delay in the Lord's answer is to test our persistence and our care. Not in a sadistic way to watch us squirm in our impatience, but to grow our compassion for others, to stretch our capacity to be able to care, to be able to pray for others, to be able to carry one another's burdens. Nehemiah's compassion and his care for others and, and his faith in God to be a God who hears and answers prayer, it is tested during these four months as he prays. It's also grown, and, and what it reveals at the end is a man who has a great heart of prayer. And he does it persistently. And some of us in this room have been praying for things more than for four months. Perhaps we've been praying for healing. It could be that um, someone in our lives, maybe even ourselves, have had physical pain that we've experienced. Uh, maybe it could be emotional pain. That's something like, God, please bring healing to this person. Bring, please bring healing to me. And this is something that's not just four months. Like This is chronic, ongoing pain that we pray for. And so you can resonate with this. Maybe it's us praying for a job. We don't know what we're going to do next. Or maybe we're praying for a spouse. Like, Lord, let there be someone that, that I can love and that they can love me and that we can get married. Or maybe we are married. We're praying for children. Maybe we're praying for a home to live in. Maybe we're praying for the salvation of somebody who's in our lives. I want to encourage you, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want to encourage you to persist in your prayers. 
to continue praying. And not because persistence is a part of like the magical process of getting God to give us what we want, but because Jesus invites us to pray persistently. Because God uses our persistence in prayer to actually build our faith. It reveals in us a trust, and that trust grows as we continue to persist in prayer and continue going to God, who is the only person that can answer your prayers. And I want to encourage you to do this because the prayers that we pray are not in vain. The prayers that we pray are not in vain. You see this in places like Psalm 25. It should be on your screen here. This is David calling out to the Lord. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. So nobody who waits on the Lord in prayerful expectation is going to be put to shame. That doesn't mean that God's going to give you exactly what you want, but it means that your prayers to Him are not in vain. People will not laugh at you and say, why are you spending all this time praying? That's literally what David is crying out to the Lord for. So we see Nehemiah doing this. We see him praying persistently every single day from his left of Nisan. We also see him praying constantly during those four months as well. So not just with regularity, but with just all of his time. Like he prayed all the time. Not during just his quiet time in the morning, uh, but as Paul says in Thessalonians chapter uh, 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, pray without ceasing. That means pray all the time, all the time throughout the day. And we'll see more of this as we continue on in the book of Nehemiah. But did you catch that little bit of the narrative? He kind of snuck in a prayer in there in verse 4. It says, that the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then he proceeds to make the request. I think we might be tempted to differentiate prayer time from our regular schedule. I, I don't think Nehemiah fell to his knees and like put his hands up and like cried out to God at that moment. I think it was a prayer in the silence of his heart and just saying like, God, please help me right now. But it was an honest and earnest prayer nonetheless. And I think for him, Nehemiah did not differentiate a time to pray and then a time to like go to work. For him, those worlds were combined. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't dedicate time to prayer, or that we shouldn't go on prayer walks, or even schedule a prayer retreat, um, or just have time that we devote to prayer. I think that that's all really helpful, helpful and healthy, and that we should do all of those things. But let's not forget that prayer affords us the immediate counsel of God at any given time, anywhere. We can call on the Lord and have immediate counsel from Him. Has anyone seen the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Is that even a show that plays anymore? One person, awesome. There, okay, a few people. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was this, originally hosted by Regis Philbin, great guy. Uh, he did a great job hosting the show, and on the show, as you're being asked questions, you would be given lifelines, and one of the lifelines was to phone a friend. Right? So you'd have a preset list of people. If you got really stuck on a question, you could call your mom or your dad or you could call your brother or whoever. Like, like the polymer scientists in your family, you could call them if it's a question about polymers. And one of the things that it made me think of is, like, in that instance, they rely so much on this 30-second phone call. In reality, when we're talking about our relationship with God, like, we have unlimited phone of friends to the creator of the universe. 
I know that sounds a little bit cheesy, but that's just the reality of it. You can call on the Lord at any single time, any place, anywhere in the world. You're not limited by any type of service uh, or anything. Like You can call out to the Lord, and that's what Nehemiah knew before that show even aired. He understood this, this idea that he could pray constantly throughout each of his days. And he did so because he understood the implication of having a direct line to the God of the universe. For us, we do some things constantly. We might not pray constantly, but we do certain things constantly, especially when we're stressed out or anxious or scared. Maybe you're known for biting your nails. That's just something you do when you're anxious. Maybe you bounce your feet a lot. Maybe you drink a lot of coffee. Maybe we're known for uh, constantly watching shows. Or maybe we're constantly on social media. Maybe we're constantly gossiping. Maybe we're constantly scheming. These are things that we can do to, to, to try to mitigate our stress, our anxiety, and the burdens of life. Even sometimes the burdens that we carry of other people as well. But listen to me. The most productive thing that we can do when we're carrying these burdens is to pray. Is to pray. It is not just a ritual that you do because you're a Christian. Like there is a reason why Nehemiah falls on his knees in prayer. And why he did that first and he did it every single day. There's a reason, as you read through the Bible, why King David, in the face of great danger and peril, when his life and the life of all the people in his kingdom were on the line, what he did was not just to go out into war, but he would recede into his stronghold and spend time seeking God's counsel and prayer. There's a reason why Jesus himself would rise early in the morning, before the sun came up, before people started waking up, to be with his Father in prayer. Prayer is not a rote activity that we perform as Christians. It's not like tossing a coin into a fountain and then just hoping for like some good luck to come our way. Prayer is being able to boldly approach the eternal throne of grace and have an audience with the creator and the sustainer of everything in existence. That's what prayer is. I pray that our church would understand this, that we would be a church filled with people that, that pray persistently and constantly as a result of actually believing that that's what's happening when we pray. And Nehemiah shows us in these verses that godly praying is persistent, that it's constant, but he also shows us that it, it involves active waiting on the Lord. Active waiting on the Lord. It takes a certain level of patience to pray persistently and constantly for four months. It's a lot of prayer. But this isn't idle prayer time for Nehemiah. And the most effective prayers are going to be coupled with an active waiting. And here's what I mean. When Nehemiah was asked, what are you requesting by King Artaxerxes in verse 4? I really don't think that this was the first time that Nehemiah had thought about what he would request, for, request of the king. It becomes pretty clear as Nehemiah makes the request that he actually has a vision for what it would look like to help his fellow brothers and his sisters. And in his praying and in his waiting, he was not, he was not passive. It was not just him tossing up these quick little prayers like, Dear God, please help my brothers and sisters who are in great trouble and shame over in Jerusalem. He wasn't just doing that. I'm sure he was praying that as part of his prayer. But in the conversations of prayer with the Lord, Nehemiah's gears were turning. His mind and his creativity were at work as he sought to not only pray that God would help, but he thought about and imagined what it would look like for God to help. And then pray into those things. And then he took time to think about what, what it would look like for maybe himself to be involved with the answers to the prayers themselves. 
Many of you uh, might know Janine and Tolu. They welcomed their precious little baby into the world a couple weeks ago. Absolutely adorable little baby. And as cute as newborns are, it, it also is like a, an absolute whirlwind as a first-time parent. It was easily the hardest thing that I ever had to do, and I didn't even deliver the baby. Like, I just had to help take care of it afterwards. And I'm sure Jimmy and Tolu are doing great, um, but we're still praying for them as they make this adjustment and this huge life change. But we're not just tossing up prayers like, God, please bless them and cover them, which is a solid prayer. If you're going to pray, you can pray that, but that's not the only thing that we as a community are doing for them. We're actively engaging our minds as we wait alongside them during the season of being new parents. And we're trying to think, like, how can we help them? How can we be a blessing to them? Like we're praying, God, bless them. Okay, how can I be an answer to that prayer for them? I remember when we had uh, our first baby. We had, we had two little girls. Um, and when we had our baby, people brought us food. They brought us meals every single day for two weeks. It was incredible. Food just left on our doorstep. Sometimes the people would knock on the door, they'd come and they'd hold our baby, they'd pray for the baby, they'd pray for us, and just like give us a moment to breathe, and it was really sweet. Sometimes people would come and just like hang out with us, which was a big deal. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but when you have a new baby, being a new parent is really awesome, but it's also like really isolating and lonely. Because you're just like stuck at home, and we all know this by now because of COVID, but at the time, we didn't know what COVID was, and people would come and they would drop food off on the doorstep and ring the door and kind of like run away, because I think they meant, they were like, oh, they just want, you know, time with the family, but we were like, oh, no, 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 like, come back, come, come hang out with us, and so people would come in, and they would hang out with us, and they would be like, so, what are you guys doing, and we would just like, give us the lowdown on everything, what's going on at church, How, how's work going, and we were just craving fellowship time, and some people knew that, so they would come in, they would bring board games, they would sit with us, along with eating the food, and it was really sweet, the people in our community really gave it to some thought about how to practically serve us and love us in the challenging season. And that was in tandem with them praying for us as well. Nehemiah did not just say, like, hashtag praying for you, and then just, like, go about his day. He wasn't like, thoughts and prayers, and, like, I'll see you later. No, he didn't do that. Like, he went to work. He prayed that God would intervene and rebuild his people, like God said that he would. But he also thought to himself, God, what would this take? <laughs> but what do the people of God need right now? And he concluded, after four months of praying and fasting and brainstorming, that the rebuilding of the walls would be a critical step to the rebuilding of the people. That the walls, which represented Israel's spiritual protection, uh, uh, the, the spiritual protection of God, if Israel could believe in that symbol and devote themselves to this task, that it would unite the nation. It would help them turn their hearts back toward God. And God then would then do the work that only he could do, which is to rebuild the nation like he promised to do. Then, I think this is where Nehemiah's gifting starts shining, because then he starts thinking logistically. Like, what would it practically take to build the wall? I think he would think, well, we need someone to inspire the people together and to oversee the practical aspects of a major construction project. Nehemiah's like, I think I can do that. And he would think, like, okay, well, i got to get there safely, and we're at war. Like, he knows what's going on in the world around him. He's like, well, if, if I can get the king's blessing, uh, he could uh, give me an escort. We can get some letters to get some safe passage over to Jerusalem. So then he would think, okay, well, we need a ton of wood and resources to get all this done. Okay, well, I remember that guy Asa. He was the keeper of the king's force. There's tons of wood just on reserve. If the king signed off on it, then they'd be able to give us the resources that we need to build this. 
then you would have to answer in some way, hey, how long am I going to have to be gone from work? I'm sure my boss is going to ask him, how long is this going to take you? So he thought about that, and he had a, a response. So when the king asked him, how long is this going to take you? When are you going to be back? He gave him an answer, and the king was pleased. He was like, oh, it's good that you know exactly how long you're going to be gone. It would not have been good if he was like, oh, I don't know how, how long it takes. I don't think Nehemiah said that. I think Nehemiah had a specific date and time. Maybe he said, like, I think it's going to take two to three months. It ends up taking 53 days. But I think that he had that in mind. And Nehemiah would then need a place to stay as he oversaw the construction. And I think he thought, oh, we got, I'm sure we have some extra uh, wood from Aesop's forest. So what we can do is just take some of that and build a house for myself uh, so I can stay right on the construction site. It's like one of those like trailers in the construction yard, right? Reasonable request. And I'm sure that there are other ideas that were thrown out there and communicated in prayer to the Lord. But here's my point. As Nehemiah was waiting, he was not idle. He was not idle. He was planning he was preparing. He was visioning what could be. Some commentators point out that the fact that it is the month of Nisan, which meant that it was the new year, that could have been very strategic on Nehemiah's part because it would have been a great time to make a request like this to the king. Other people say that it's really significant that the queen was there. That little parenthetical, it's actually not very normal for the queen to be in the king's presence in this context, but she was there. And so Nehemiah could have waited for this to happen because it could have done two things. One, it could have softened Adaxerxes' disposition toward Nehemiah, but it also would have been a witness, someone to hold the king accountable for the, any promises they would make to Nehemiah. So like, there's a lot of strategy that could have played into this. And we don't know exactly which details of these circumstances are just sovereignly aligned by God and what is strategically coordinated by Nehemiah, or maybe a combination of both of those together. But what we do know is that Nehemiah was not passively praying for four months. Like He's actively waiting on the Lord. He's visioning, he's planning, he's thinking, and he's waiting for that opportunity, which then goes all the way back to that moment where He's asked, what's, what's the matter? Why are you so sad? And he gets like scared because I think he realizes this is the moment I've been praying for for four months. Not many of us are embarking on international construction projects any, anytime soon, I don't think. But we are, as Christians, we're called to pray and to consider how we can be a part of building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And godly prayer, the kind of prayer that the Lord invites us into is to be done persistently, it's to be done constantly, but it also is meant to actively engage us in what God's doing. It's not just God, show me what you're doing. I think a lot of times God invites us in. See, there are times in the Bible where God clearly calls and communicates his plan to God's people and their response is simply to obey. So uh, God will say, hey, build an ark. Here are the dimensions and the resources, Noah. Go out. And Noah does it. But then there are other times, like this instance with Nehemiah, where Nehemiah drafts up the plan. Isn't that wild? He presents it to the Lord, and the Lord approves the plan and gives it his blessing by just blasting open the doors and paving the way to make it all possible. Nehemiah, in these first two chapters, is really living and breathing Proverbs 16.9. If you don't know this, it's going to be up on your screen. It just says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Heart of man plans his way, and the Lord establishes his steps. So I hope that in your prayers, Mercy House, as you pray persistently and constantly, that you also feel empowered to use the gifts that God has given you, to use the godly passions that the Lord has put into your heart 
as part of the process of trying to figure out how to move forward in prayer and how you can be a part of the answers, answers to your own prayers. This is honestly where the fun, in my opinion, of prayer and having a relationship with God comes in. I think for some of us, this idea like blows our mind. Because we have a very top-down view of God, which is fine, but in terms of communication, we don't really understand that communication goes both ways. So some of us might be praying and asking God, what should I do with my life? That's a fair question. I've asked that question in my life as well. And what we would want, I think, some of us, is just a clear life plan. Like, God, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. Give me some specific instructions. Uh, maybe you, you actually tell me with an audible voice what to do, and I'll do it. And I think he might do that for some of us, but I think for others of us, he might be responding in prayer and asking us, what do you want to do with your life? Right? God could be asking, like, what do you think would be most glorifying to me? Based on your gifts and what you like to do and what you know about me, what do you think that you could do with your life? And he just leaves it open for you to figure out. I think sometimes this like blows our mind because we just don't expect that God to be that gracious or even that loving. But even our daughters, but Chloe would be like, Daddy, what are we doing today? And if we have the freedom, we'll be like, I don't know, what do you want to do? She's like, huh? <laughs> like, it's up to me. Uh, can we go to the park? Yeah, let's go to the park. Can we get ice cream? Maybe, right? Like, we'll see how the park goes first, and then we'll get to the ice cream. The parameters for faithful Christian living are clear, right? To submit yourself to the Lord, to live under the authority of God's word as you read it, to put your trust and faith in Jesus, to follow him. Like those are kind of the, the parameters of what it means to be in covenant with God. But the possibilities for what this looks like for you is going to be just as varied and as unique as each and every person in this room. That's like scary, but also beautiful, is that each of you are called to live different lives as you follow Jesus. Here's one quick example of how prayers and following God can look different while still maintaining the same parameters. It's actually happening right here in this passage. I think this is really cool. Nehemiah, uh, in this passage, asks for protection from King Artaxerxes. Doesn't seem that significant, but that's one of his, his requests, and the king gives it to him. Ezra, which is the first half of this book, we divide it in our current Bibles as Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's always been traditionally held as one whole book. Ezra, uh, a prophet some 13 years earlier was in a very similar situation, but it looked very different. So the verses should be on your screen right now. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 and 23. This is Ezra speaking. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our kids. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So Ezra basically says, look, God is for us. He is our ultimate protector, and so we don't need an armed escort. Right, God? And God says, right, and they continue on without an escort. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but right here, 13 years later, Nehemiah is praying and resolves to do the exact opposite. He actually asks the king for an escort. And it, it, it isn't because he doesn't have faith that God would protect him, but he had resolved that a way that God could protect him would be through a military escort. Therefore, the second half of verse 8, again, it says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon him. God blessed 
his plan. There was a conversation that happened there. And they're similar because you see this phrase, the hand of God, in these two passages. That is not a coincidence. And so you see here two different men walking faithfully with the Lord in conversation with God in prayer, operating under the same parameters, yet with two completely different outcomes. That's unique. What does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us that prayer is a dynamic experience of relationship with God. It's a dynamic experience for each and every one of us. Prayer is not sending out a message in a bottle and like throwing it out of the ocean and hoping that at some point, something is going to return to us. No, it is a two-way radio where we have conversation with our God. My hope is that we would be a church that embraces that and pray, and that we pray persistently, that we pray constantly, and that in that prayerfulness that we actually are actively engaging our minds and our creativity as we wait. Biblical prayer, the prayer that we see in the Bible, is powerful and it is meaningful. Prayer is often more about the conversation and the relationship that happens with the Lord than it is about just the answer that you're seeking. That's what we see about in Nehemiah. There is a process, a sweet fellowship that Nehemiah got to have with the Lord as he's visioning what could be. He's, he's not doing that in a vacuum. He's doing that with the Lord. And so for four months, he gets to experience that. So what I want to do this morning, I want to encourage you to pray. And one of the ways I want to encourage you is I want to close by giving you some promises from Scripture. Keep in mind as you pray. These are going to be on your screens. I'm going to go through them relatively quickly. But just listen to the Word of God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you, then, who are evil, not to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Give good things to those who ask him. John chapter 14, verse 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Psalm 91, verse 14, this is God speaking. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And last one here, Proverbs 15, verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. That last verse shows us that God doesn't listen to all prayers equally. Proverbs 15, 29, which is what I just read, says the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of 
the righteous. As we take communion, we're reminded that if we put our faith and our trust in the work of Jesus, who died for our sins on the cross, that God has forgiven us of our sins, that he has purified us, that he has made us clean, and that he has made us righteous before God, then the Lord hears our prayers. We are not far and wicked. We are close, and we're able to converse with him. Communion, this meal that, that we share, is a part of being in relationship with God, a relationship of peace where God actually calls us his friend. It's the assurance, not just of our salvation as Christians, but of God's inclination to actually hear our prayers. And it's a reminder of why we can even pray to begin with, and why we can be assured that God hears us in our prayers. The very last thing I want to tell you, Mercy House, is that God hears your prayers. He hears your prayers. When you're alone at night, you're sad, angry, distraught, heartbroken, you're crying at your pillow, and you're like, God, help. He hears your prayer. When you're terrified on the side of the road, you don't know what to do, and you call out for help, God hears your prayer. When you're with your brothers and sisters and just going through something, and you're all praying together, and it doesn't seem like God's answering you in that moment, just know that God hears your prayer. And sometimes his answers might be not yet, it might be not right now, it might be an answer that you don't necessarily want to hear, but know that God loves you, that he wants what is absolutely best for you, and sometimes we do not understand how that can be true given our circumstances. But those of us who are in Christ can trust. We can trust him as we pray. So let's do that now. Let's pray together. Father, you are good, God. And you, um, God, are just worthy of calling out to you for help. God, I'm reminded of earlier this morning with the children up here and we asked them what we would do if there was a fire, and they immediately said, call 911. God, that's so true. There, there are people that we can call on in moments of emergency like that, but there are other situations, God, that not even 911 can resolve. And as good as they are at their jobs, the people who protect us and keep us safe, they are not as good as you, God. And so, Lord, we just acknowledge that you are our ultimate source of help. You are the person that we ought to run to first and foremost, Lord, if we're in any type of need, if we're scared or lonely or frustrated or sad, Lord. And so help us, Lord, be a community that prays, that, that we pray persistently, that we pray constantly, that we're actively waiting for your response, God. We confess that we don't do that well. As a community, as individuals, God, we're not uh, great at praying all the time and praying persistently being creatively patient as we wait. So Lord, I pray that you would help us individually and as a community grow in this area of prayer. God, thank you that you invite us to pray like this. Thank you that we can't bore you or we can't annoy you, God, but you welcome it. You love it. So Lord, help us to take you up on your challenge and your invitation to pray. God, we pray for our community here. We pray that you continue to grow us that you would mature us, Lord, that you would let us be not just hearers, but doers of your word. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.